We've uh, been two weeks into a series, and this is our third week, on the subject of discovering God's will for your life. And last week, I ended with a question. Do you remember what the question was? When did you start to give a rip about God's will in your life? When did you start to give a rip about God's will in your life? And that's how we framed it up according uh, to the guys group. Now, maybe you can answer that question pretty clearly. Maybe that question has not been answered yet in your life. Maybe that question just throws you for a loop and you don't even know what I'm talking about right now when I say that. In Jeremiah, one of uh, an often quoted verse in Jeremiah 29 says this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Have you heard that verse before? Let's read that together. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, that verse was spoken thousands of years ago to the Israelite people. God Almighty Yahweh, as he is referred to, chose a group of people. He chose a group of people to bless so that the whole world might be blessed through that group of people, the Israelites. Were they unique and special unto any other group of people? No. But that was just God's way in the beginning of time, how he was going to disperse his love and his grace. I am going to bless you so that you can be a blessing, it says in Genesis 12. And and so this verse applies to a large group of people. Now, we see this verse often in a very personal way because we live in America and we are very individualistic and sometimes myopic. But it's true in both regards. God wants to bless the body of people that are called his. But in that, he's also wanting to bless each and every one of us. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to ruin your life, make you someone that's weird, and take away anything you ever aspired to do. That's not what it says. He wants to give you hope. A beautiful future. That's his desire. But would it not be true, whether you have come to wrestle with the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life, or whether you've had that prompting and that conviction to surrender to him before, or maybe you're just on the beginning part of your walk and trying to discover if God has any place in your life. Is it not true that that kind of statement is not what resonates and comes to us? When we think about yielding to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, what comes to us is the fear that he doesn't have great plans for us and that we will not have an enjoyable future if we go his way. In fact, if you were to ask your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, what they think about the Christian faith and what they think about Christians, I'm going to open it up here, so be ready. What are some of the comments that you would expect to hear from people around you when you ask them the question, what do you think about Christians and Christianity? Anybody? What? 
I'm sorry, I still think hypocrisy. Hypocrisy defined as saying one thing and doing something else, right? What else would they say? Narrow-minded. They're intolerant. Judging. Pushy. Weak. Boring. I, I just hope boring. Isn't that true? Boring. I don't have any fun. What? Naive. Unaccepting. Cultish. What else? Pete, do you have one there? Holier than now. Bible thumper. Holy roller, right? Any other comments? Weird. A follower. What else? A Jesus freak. All right. Wow. Why are you guys all here today, man? You bunch of weird, Jesus freak, boring, naive, legalistic, Bible thumping people. I think the adversary, the fallen archangel Lucifer, stays true to his name. He's a deceiver. God is not against you. He is not wanting to make you weird. He does not desire to give you a boring life. He does not want you to be a legalistic hypocrite that's naive, that's cultish. The God that you're seeking this morning, the God that we just sang about, is the God who declares. That's not the Scriptures. That wasn't, you know, some Old Testament writer. Declares the Lord Yahweh. I know the plans I have for you. They're plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, One of the first things that needs to happen in the discovering of God's will for our life, I believe, is to believe that that is true. You will stay far away from God if you remain behind the stereotypes and the cynicism of other people. You need to dig into God's word. You need to to, to go on a prayer walk. You're just, you know, cry out in the quietness of your home, whatever it is. God, I want you to begin to show me who you really are. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. You just don't really know God too much. It's just, God, who are you? And I believe you'll come around all different kinds of passages to understand that for those people who are seeking him, he desires to bless them, to prosper them, maybe not financially, but to prosper them with hope and future and wholeness. He is for you. And he has created you unique, and he is going to let you be your unique person of being a follower of him. So your first thing you sort of have to understand that God really does have plans for you. Why just try to discover God's will if you don't believe that there is a will? But then you've got to come back to that question I just asked a little while ago. If you really do believe God has plans for you and there are plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future, then um, when did you really start to care about that? When did you start to give a rip about God's will in your life? Or, if I can be just so straightforward... Are you just continuing to give a rip about what you want to do with your own life? You have to make that choice to step not only into a belief that God has plans for you, but then 
to step into a deep conviction that you really want to know and to follow that will. And it doesn't matter what background we come from, what nation we come from, what type of you know, stripe of religious background we come from. We all have this in common. We are human beings. And in the human being, there's a fallenness that causes us to resist wanting to do the will of God. The sinful nature... We were born with it. It's traced back to Adam and Eve when God gave freedom of choice. He gave that free will so that people could choose to love him. With that free will, mankind chose to not love him and to disobey him. Sin entered the world, and all of us are born into this sin, and this sin causes us to have a distance from God. And the deceiver continues to attack us and make us think that for us to align ourselves with God's purpose and his will is not the best option for us. And so we live with blinders on. But then sometimes we do come to the acknowledgement of, yeah, he does have a plan, but then we realize, okay, I just don't want to go that way. And we're going to be looking at that today. So with this verse, it's one of the different verses I'm leading off with each week. I want you as another great verse to have memorized if you don't have it. Jeremiah 29, 11. Believe it. He does have plans for you to give you a hope and to prosper you. But you have to be willing to move in that direction. And hopefully, maybe this series will be the time down the road somewhere you point. I started to give a rip about God's will in my life when we did that series at the Awakening Church back in March of 2015. Now, we divided it into, uh, sometimes always concern myself with repeating, but I know that repeating as a teacher helps, that there's two, indistinct, there's two distinguishable big wills. The first is God's sovereign will, which is God's will of ultimate purpose. And most of Scripture is talking about what his ultimate will will be, and his will will be done no matter how disobedient we are as mankind. But then there's God's directive will, God's will of personal command, both in moral directives and in life directives. Moral directives are steadfast. They're from Scripture. They're for our benefit. They're for our health because God made us a certain way. He knows how we need to go. Read the instructions. It's pretty smart. I'm not one of those people that enjoy doing that. I like to put it together myself until I start to realize that I don't know what I'm doing. Moral directives. It's built that way. Life directories, though, has to do with some of the big decisions, and we talked about that some last week. And last week, we looked at two different sort of paradigms of how we view discovering God's will for us, discovering the plans that he has for our life, finding out how he wants to prosper us, how he wants to give us a hope and a future. And so we start off with our life on this continuum. And uh, I had a linear line called God's perfect will. And there's this perception then that if you're on God's perfect will and you screw up, All right. You fall down into God's permissive will, plan B, and then you screw up some more and you're now down on God's permissive will, plan C, down to God's permissive will, plan D. And then you're just feeling really terrible because you realize that you have messed up with your life and there's really not any ultimate hope to climb back up on the perfect plan. Right. We walk through that. You remember that? I don't know if that helped you. I hope it did last week. Uh, uh, The uh, emojis there probably would help. I think you remember that. I was talking to somebody who was writing with me to men's retreat this, this uh, uh, Friday afternoon, and uh, we gave reference back to this, and we were talking about our journeys of life. And it's interesting, at men's retreat, they spoke on living a better story. Uh, that's what Sean spoke on. And uh, so we were saying, you know, what's your view of God's will? And as we were discussing it in our vehicle, uh, the person writing with me said, you know, as it comes to those lines you had last week, A, B, C, D, 
I think I'm down on double Q. Uh, isn't that true? Just, you know, we have fallen short in so many places, and the adversary wants us to believe that there's no way that we could discover God's perfect will for our life. Well, this kind of paradigm brings oppression, we talked about last week, but then I changed it up and I made it this type of paradigm, which is more of a checkerboard. Maybe God's will for you is not some linear line, but maybe it's more of a matrix or a grid. So he comes and he gives you choices, and if you make a choice, go this direction, go that direction. He says, that's fine. We gave the Tozer quote where he says, you know, he leads his shepherds and his sheep into a field of pasture, but he doesn't tell them what tough of grass to eat. So God gives us freedom and choice. Sometimes those choices aren't the best as maybe other choices, but it doesn't wreck God's perfect will for your life because he can continue to move you through this matrix and move you across the checkerboard. You will exit the other side in some location, and all in his sight is pleasing because the most important thing isn't the destination it's the journey and the journey is for the purpose of making you like christ that's his will right so we had this matrix and uh, then i jumped to this diagram as it relates to how we actually do then in those moments decide maybe what the next move is across the checkerboard and we talked about the three things that need to align the three lighthouses, the promptings of the Holy Spirit that come to us. I think God wants me to do something. I think he's asking me to do this. All right? You just feel a prompting. Then what do you do with that prompting? You align it with the biblical teaching and with biblical counsel of godly people around you. What do you think? Let me the way this before God. And then you have to look at some of the providential circumstances that God brings into your life and the timing of things. And through those three big steps, you are praying all the time. You're practicing the presence of God in your life. And you're searching for that peace whereby you can make that step in the right direction as you feel in that moment in time to follow God's will. And so then you have to take that step of faith and you have to operate by action. Now, we're going to drill down a little bit into this next week. But there's one big stamp I need to put over this whole little plan. It's this. You will never discover and experience God's will in your life until you check the motive of your heart. The motive of your heart. And the motive of the heart will lead you in one of two directions. It will lead you to a life that is strong and true and discovering God's will, even though it may not be always clear. Or it can lead your life to be wrecked in many ways that you don't need to go down. And so this is basically my point today. Before we come back and drill down on that next week, the motive of the heart You can write it down. The motive of the heart is the single most important factor in discovering and experiencing God's will. Maybe you've been there before. I've been there. God, show me your will, and then I'll decide if I want to go that direction. Or God shows you his will, Gives you the promptings of the Spirit, the affirmation of Scripture and counsel and circumstances and timing. And you still dig in your heels because the motive of the heart is impure. All right? I want us to look at a story today that some of you may be familiar with. If you're not, you're going to think this is one of the most bizarre stories in Scripture, and it is. 
It comes out in Numbers 22. It's the story of Balaam and Balak. But it's also the story of a donkey. And some of you know this story. I want you to jump there in scriptures. We're not going to put them all up on the screen. But in Numbers 22, we have the story of the Israelites. And they're on their way searching to the promised land. So they've been freed from Egypt. Moses is their leader. They're taking on one piece of territory after another piece of territory. They're trying to be a peaceful people. They know that they're blessed by God in order to be a blessing. They've been told that. But God's moving them towards the promised land. God's moving the Israelites from their captivity in Egypt to the promised land, which is modern-day Israel. And they're disobedient in different turns. They have these wanderings, these roamings around. But Moses was really trying to expedite and get them there, and he's asking for favor with different people that dwell in some of the lands that they would be able to pass through freely, whatever it may be, and they're not going to cause any problems. So we pick it up with chapter 22. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho and hopefully have some semblance of understanding Israel, where the Jordan River is and where Jericho might be close to the Jordan River. This is on the other side. The Moabites were there. Now, Balak, son of Zopher, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Well, if you read before this, the Amorites, uh, they resisted and, and, and God wiped them out. All right? And so uh, they had heard about what had happened to the Amorites, the Moabites had. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zophar, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Bor, who was at Pethor near the river in his native land. Now, there's not a lot known about Balaam, but apparently Balaam was... Uh, a prophet. Balaam also sort of maybe flirted with divination and other kinds of things, but uh, he was not a part of the Israelite tribe, but yet he understood who God was. And so uh, we won't try to drill down into that, but Balaam was this prophet that was sought after because he was really able to make things happen in a prophetic realm or in a spiritual realm. Balak said, so the leaders of Moab said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. So there's Balaam. He has some power. If he blesses the people, they're blessed. If he curses, they're cursed. And uh, here's the Moabite king. He's really fearful because, oh, my goodness, have you heard the story? They're coming our way. They're covering all the land. They're going to take over us, too. We've got to do something. We just can't send our army out there and defeat them because, you know, look what's gone before. So he's looking for another alternative. So he, he bring, brings in the top dog in his thinking and tries to get him uh, to consider putting a curse on the Israelites. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will give, bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite princes, or the officials from these areas, stayed with him. All right? So they went to Balaam. They said, hey, come with us. Uh, we want you to uh, pronounce this curse over the Israelites. And uh, Balaam, he says, all right, you, you hang here. Let me think about that. 
and uh, I'll, I'll get back in touch with you here. God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you who are staying with you? Verse 10, Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zophar, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them back. But God said to Balaam, and this is God, this is Yahweh, this is the Lord speaking to this unique individual named Balaam. Do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's princes and officials, Go back to your own country, for the Lord, well, he has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite princesses returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come to us. Then Balak sent other princesses, other officials, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, This is what Balak's son of Zophar says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people. But Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now stay here tonight as the others did, and I will find out what else the Lord will tell me. Balaam may have been a notarized spiritual man, a prophet, one who could bless and curse. But Balaam was a double-minded man when it came to the will of God. Here's Balaam throwing up a, a pretty valid reason why he can't curse them. God told me so. God told me so. But he really shouldn't have put it in that framework. It was more like, um, these are God's holy people and they will not do this and I refuse to do it. But he sort of blames God. I, I'd like to help you guys out, man. I mean, you're offering a lot of money there. That's pretty cool. But, you know, God, God, you know, Lord's will. I have, to, I have to go this other direction. The Lord's holding me back. He said the right thing after doing the right thing, seeking God. But he did not take action in the right way concerning what God spoke to him about. Do not curse my people. In fact, what are you even doing messing with them in your own house? If you've been there before, as I have been at different times, you try to negotiate with God. And you try to say, well, maybe it's not that bad, God. I don't quite understand your reasoning why you won't give me permission to do X, Y, Z, whatever it may be. And so you spend more time in prayer and you pray again and you pray again and you seek more counsel and you're trying to open yourself up to that whole path, right? But there's something inherently wrong with you being able to discover and experience God's will. His incredible plan for your life is that you are compromised in your spirit. In your heart, your motive is not pure. Because your motive is to do your real will. You really don't give the ultimate rip about God's will. 
And so whenever you seek the Lord's will in your life, his directive commands for how to live the next steps takes, you have to get yourself to a place where you are not allowing your own personal self-centered motives to pollute the decision-making process. And we are very tricky individuals, human beings are, because we are easily double-minded. So here's Balaam. They come to him. He says, let me ask God. God says, no, Balaam, what are you doing? I'm sorry, guys, I can't go with you. Okay, see you later. They go back to Balak. Balak says, oh, you have got to. i got to get more officials, more, more promises, more goods and, and things, and, and take it to him one more time. Balaam, Balaam, please come and do this. Can, can, can you comprehend God on the other end of that prayer request the second time? Balaam going, hey, God, it's me again. Um, how about you letting me do this curse thing on your people? And God just must pull out his hair if he has hair. I don't know. And he goes, what are you doing? Get out of my courtroom, if you will. I've told you the answer on that. Don't be bringing this back to me. That's God's attitude. But because God created us as free people with a free will, he will not straightjacket us and make us do his will. So we have our human volitional choice to make. And so he sees in the heart of Balaam a double-minded, compromised man. And so this is what we find in verse 20. That night, God came to Balaam after Balaam had sought him out and he knew what was going on. And he said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. God changes mind? No, God's ultimate sovereign will is still going to work. But he's wanting to work his will in the lives and the hearts of the Israelites and the hearts of someone like a Balaam and even a Balak. And God says, all right, you stubborn little prophet man. Go and do what you want to do. I don't know about you, but sometimes I felt that from God, too, that God just relinquishes. He's still in sovereign control. But he says, you want to be stubborn? You want to be pigheaded about it? Then go ahead and see what happens. Balaam got up in the morning. This starts to be the weird part of the story. Saddled his Toyota. Saddled his donkey. And went with the princess of Moab. But God was very angry when he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. The angel of the Lord. Any of you seen the angel of the Lord? I'm sure if you saw the angel of the Lord... It would be a little bit of a frightening moment. The angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the two vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot up against it. So he beat her again. I'm going to get the animal advocate rights people out. 
Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to do to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat her with his staff. Here's the weird part. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me three these three times? It's like you stepped into a Shrek movie. <laughs> I, you know, I actually mentioned to a couple, three people, a couple people last night, says, what are you speaking on tomorrow? And I said, I'm, I'm speaking on Balaam and his donkey. And um, they were all giving me a hard time because this is the one time that it's actually lawful for a pastor up front to say the word ass. Greg England, he, he shared with me a J. Vernon McGee quote in worship team this morning laid off. And what was that? I'm going to get this quote wrong there, Greg. But it comes from Greg through J. Vernon McGee. So he says, in the Old Testament, you think it's a miracle to hear an ass speak. But in the modern time, it's a miracle to have an ass not speak. <laughs> Is that fairly close? I, I'm not sure if animals spoke often in the Old Testament, but we do have it here. And when the donkey spoke, I'm sure it wasn't a syntax that came with his lips moving and his tongue. It was the voice of God speaking through the open mouth of an ass. And in part, God could have easily looked at Balaam and called him that same name. What are you doing? Poor donkey. Man, I've been loyal to you. Will you beat me up? Three times you're beating me up. But see, Balaam didn't see what the donkey had saw. Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. His sword drawn. So he bowed low, and he fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me, these three times. If she had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared her. Balaam said to the angel, the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with the princesses of Balak. Now, it's a little bit confusing as a white of God said, all right, have it your way. Go ahead and go. And then he sends the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord stands there and he is ready to even smite Balaam if he continues. But his donkey sees the angel of the Lord and sidesteps it all. But then at the end, he says, go ahead and go and go with these men. Balaam is in a state of disobedience from what he knows God's will is. But God's not going to ultimately stand in his way to keep him from making such a sin-sick decision. 
And things turn, and you can read further there, and sometimes you think that Balaam basically got away with it and there wasn't any punishment. But if you read further in a few more chapters, the Israelites are plagued. 24,000 die, and it has to do with the lifestyle and some of the other things that came upon them. Balaam is known today not by some great prophet, as some great prophet and spiritual man, but he's known as a compromised man. He's known as one who followed the way not of God, but he followed the way of sin. In 2 Peter 2.15, we find these words in the New Testament. He's being given reference to. They have left the straight way, referring to some supposed followers of Christ, and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Little sidebar there. I always love it when Scripture affirms Scripture. Here in the New Testament is Scripture affirming something that's quite bizarre in the Old Testament. All right? And so the idea that did this donkey actually speak with a voice is reaffirmed here in Second Peter. But Balaam is known as one who what? What's the phrase? Love the wages of wickedness. And why does it say that? Because he was wanting the silver and the gold, and, and I'm going to do this divination, hand it to me. His heart was not pure. His motive was not pure in the seeking of God. How many times, time and time again, is it true of Christ's followers that we seek God, but our motive is not pure because there's other wages that we would like to receive? You have to move yourself to a place of no druthers. God, whatever your will is, that's your will. And I choose to seek to walk in the way of that will. And I am not here for my own benefit or for my own gain. So, discerning God's will, overall, brand it. I put it up here on the timeline. What is the motive of the heart? Because we could spend a lot of time unpacking all the other things of how to discern God's will, steps along the way. But if we don't have the motive thing right, then we are going to be a most miserable case in trying to discern God's will, let alone trying to experience God's will. And the motive of the heart is checked time and time again throughout Scripture. In fact, if you can go all the way back to Abraham, right? Here's Abraham. God speaks to him that he needs to sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar. He takes Isaac, goes up to the altar. He's ready to slay him because he's being obedient to what? God's will. You don't find Abraham sitting around trying to negotiate with God. Well, God, I hear you say that, but uh, could I come back to you tomorrow and pray about this again? Do you really want to take, take my son away from me and do this? No, you find an obedient spirit in Abraham. And it was a spirit of faith. We've talked about it before. He probably expected God to raise him from the dead, but he was going to be obedient in sacrificing his own son because God wanted to know if Abraham loved him. God, Yahweh, above all things, including his own family. And so as Abraham sought the will of God in his life, he had a motive that the motive of his heart was one that was checked with purity and righteousness. And Scripture records that Abraham, right, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. So what's the motive of our heart? If you're to... Uh, Look in Revelation, you find another example. 
Another example of Balaam's name being mentioned. When the revelation came to the different churches that are recorded there. And so you find here that um, Balaam has uh, lost my place. Oh, to the church in Pergamum in verse 14 of chapter 2 of Revelation. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, he says to this church. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. I want to be known as somebody who is not compromised by the wages of sinfulness, who is not someone who's turning a deaf ear to God. I want to be known as someone who hears the voice of God, discerns the will, and walks in the way of it. And many times when that happens, you just simply have to say what Jesus said when he came to the cross. Not my will, but your will be done. And so as we come to the table here this morning, and this table of the elements, the bread and and, uh, the cup is open to anybody, even if you're just visiting today. But this is a table of communion that is open to those who want to be Christ followers. In fact, Scripture is pretty clear not to, like, condemn yourself by taking of the elements if you have a heart that's compromised concerning your desire to follow the Lord. Now, we all have sins in our life, but thankfully it's because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his forgiveness, that's able to be applied to all of our sins, past, present, and future. So we come to the table with clean hands and a pure heart because of Christ dwelling within us. But as we prepare to take of the elements today in remembrance of the Lord and even joining with the the men at the men's retreat and worship, may we check the motive of our heart as to are we following the Lord with a, with a purity of intention? Or are we compromised? Are we double-minded, as it says in James? And if there is some double-mindedness, maybe this moment of worship would be a good time for you to respond by simply laying down your will and choosing God's will. Maybe that has to do with a place of confession. Maybe of asking forgiveness of someone that God tells you to follow up on, even today. Maybe it has to do with some waywardness and and some escapist kinds of sins that you're toying with. The communion table is not just to put a period on the end of a worship service. The communion table is to check our heart and enter into his presence. So I'm going to invite the worship um, ladies to come up. They're going to sing a song in the preparing for communion. And following communion, I'll read scripture and pray, and then we'll partake of the elements together. But take of this song opportunity and see where you're at concerning the desire to follow God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength as we seek him in this precious moment.